This show is sponsored by Set for Life Insurance, the ultimate client experience in the insurance industry. Are you looking for the perfect insurance coverage that suits your needs? Founded in 1993 by President Jamie K. Fleischner, Set for Life Insurance specializes in individual life, disability, and long-term care insurance. As brokers, they represent numerous companies in the industry, ensuring that their clients get the best products at the most cost-effective rate. What sets Set for Life Insurance apart? You'll enjoy special discounts, priority underwriting handling, and even exceptions in the underwriting process. So why wait? Contact Set for Life Insurance today and let them be your insurance partner for life. Visit their website at setforlifeinsurance.com or call them at 1-888-553-3559. What do all science deniers have in common? How do they end up down that rabbit hole to begin with? And how do we have a reasonable conversation with them? And can we convince them out of their beliefs? Find out. This is part one of two. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Lee McIntyre, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So a brief introduction for the audience. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at BU and a recent lecturer in ethics at Harvard Extension School. He has a PhD in philosophy from University of Michigan, formerly executive director of the Institute of Quantitative Social Science. I didn't realize you could quantify social science at Harvard University. And he's also served as policy advisor to the executive dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard and associate director in the research department of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Interesting, you know, interesting turn there. It all made um, sense at the time. <laughs> and he's also the host, uh, the, the author of many books, um, only a few of which are on disinformation, how to talk to a science denier, which is going to be, you know, that's going to be a lot of what we're talking about today. The art of good and evil, philosophy of science, the sin eater, the scientific attitude, post-truth, Respecting Truth, Dark Ages, and Laws and Explanation in the Social Sciences, and Explaining Explanation, Essays in the Philosophies of the Special Sciences. And his work has been translated into 17 languages, and most importantly, husband to an anesthesiologist. Yes, I agree. (laughs) I, I agree. That's the most important thing. I like to start with an intro that lays down credibility for the guests so that the audience knows that they should be listening to this person as an expert. And I feel like that really helps. We're tribal, so it helps give a little push in that direction. Okay. You went into the lion's den. That was the inspiration for the book, right? For how to talk to a science denier. You went to a conference of flat earthers, right? And then in doing so, recognized that there was a blueprint that all science deniers seem to follow. Let's start off talking about what that blueprint is. Well, the the blueprint actually came first, and the blueprint was not something that I uh, invented or discovered. It was something that I knew about before I went to the to the convention. Um, and this is based on some work by uh, Mark and Chris Hufnagel, um, and some later uh, cognitive scientists developed it. And the idea is this, all science deniers reason in the same way whether they're flat earthers or anti-vaxxers or climate deniers or anti-evolutionists, they're all following this same 
pattern. And let me see if I can can get it all. There are five steps to it. One, and they don't necessarily, you know, read this somewhere. They they just fulfill it. But the five steps are these: they cherry pick evidence, they believe in conspiracy theories, they engage in illogical reasoning, they rely on fake experts, and then my personal favorite step: they think that science has to be perfect in order to be credible. And the reason that's so fascinating is because what it means is once you understand that battle plan, it means that you can talk to science deniers really about any topic because they're all using the same type of reasoning. But here's the thing, what I discovered, this is what I discovered at Flat Earth. I wasn't so interested in talking to them about what they believed and you know the, you know, the content of their beliefs as why they believed it. You know, what was the reasoning pattern that led them to it? Because what I was really doing was practicing up on the flat earthers so that I could then go talk to the climate deniers on the theory that you were training. they're the same. Yeah, I was training <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm just going to start with the worst science deniers I can find. This ought to be easy. Well, it yeah. was not easy for all the reasons that, you know, I, I can talk about. I mean, they're embedded and they do not trust scientists. And, you know, so, I mean, I learned a ton that was very helpful then in other conversations with other types of deniers. But I've got to say, spending two days at a flat earth convention was the deep end of the pool. I thought it was going to be easy, but it turned out to really be the deep end of the pool. So that, and that was, and then that's what the first chapter of the book is about. I guess the shallow end of the pool might be someone who's like, they want their kid to get all the vaccines, but maybe spaced out a bit. Like they're like close to following the recommendations, but yeah, mostly not like the, if you're believing that the earth is flat, you're yes. Yeah. Even though you're it, right. to us. Yeah. You're, you're right. And you, you framed it in just the right way. It's because within any area of science denial, it's a spectrum. It goes from the people who are just kind of committed to the people who are all the way committed. Now, the thing is, in flat Earth, you don't find many people who are just dipping their toe in the water. I mean, you just got, they're just going to go for the whole thing. Yeah. But vaccines is a good example. You have people who are what they call vaccine hesitant, right? So maybe they've kind of heard something and they really don't know. And they're not completely radicalized yet, not enough to go to a convention, say, of anti-vaxxers. By the time somebody goes to a convention, they're pretty hardcore. And so really the one goal is to catch them before they get to that point, you know, because when somebody's, you know, on, on this spectrum of science to know, when they're just hesitant, when they're just trying out the belief, there's still time for them to listen to evidence. But later on, they don't trust the people who have the evidence. They're just, they're not interested in hearing what you have to say. So from that blueprint, it seems like a couple of those things could really affect any of us, right? Like not expecting science to be perfect because, you know, this is a physician audience. So we recognize that things change as we get more data and something that we thought that we learned in med school might turn out to be true. And, and hopefully we can change. But, you know, we we're human. We cherry pick facts, right? We might only listen to some things that really fit with some of our, our preconceived notions or ideas. We do. We rely on experts. Like when I decided to get vaccinated for COVID, I relied on the experts and, you know, I believe theories. And so, you know, a couple of these things 
it seems like all of us could really fall into, you know, the difference being like, you know, them being, their reasoning being completely illogical and flawed and then the science being perfect. But so, so what about, like when I rely on experts, how do I tell the real experts from the fake experts? Is there any thing that I should be looking out for? Any patterns that you've identified? It's, it's a really good question because those five things are all rooted in cognitive biases that we all have. You know, we all suffer from ego, motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, you know, all of these, uh, you know, these things where you know, we want our own theory to be correct. Um, we want the people that we talk to, you know, to like us, you know, that can have an effect on what we believe, you know, which community are we in? And so science denial really is everybody's problem. I'm not sure that you can say necessarily that, you know, you've got to, that no, there's somebody who, you know, they just don't have to worry about it. And it's because it's so darn topical. Because people who are deniers about one topic are not necessarily deniers about another topic. So is it possible? Now, I'm, I don't want to overstretch this. All I'm saying is that you have to be careful in your own reasoning. You have to kind of do a, a little audit of your beliefs sometimes. And, and those five tropes are, by the way, pretty interesting. Because since those are the necessary conditions and together they're sufficient for being a science denier, if you want to check your own beliefs, you know, ask yourself just what you asked. How do I know that this person is an expert? Am I just cherry picking the facts or am I looking at all the data? Is this a conspiracy or is it a conspiracy theory? What's the difference? Well, is there any evidence that it's true? You know, if you find yourself saying, no, there's no evidence, but that's just how good the conspirators are, or, you know, that's what they want you to think, that's when you're in trouble. So, you know, being vigilant of your own beliefs is really important. And I have gotten caught on a, a few things in my life where I think, you know, I shouldn't have believed that and, you know, am open to changing my mind. Now, that, that is a very important aspect, I think, of being a scientific person. You know, physicians are scientifically oriented. And when you're scientifically oriented, when you have what I call the scientific attitude, it means that you are willing to change your beliefs on the basis of new evidence. If you're willing to do that, I, I think you've got the, the magic formula. I think that's okay. Because what you often find in the denialist community is that's what they're not willing to do. When you give them evidence that contradicts their beliefs, they go, yeah, but what about, and then they're on to the next thing. They, they just, they don't revise their beliefs based on new data. And that's really, for me, the ripping point with deniers or pseudoscientists. It's this inability to, to be flexible. Sometimes people think of scientists or physicians as, you know, know-it-alls or, you know, elite. So they always saying that they proved it. They're certain they know everything. I think to the opposite, especially, you know, when you're talking to one another, you understand you're you're always testing your knowledge against data. You're always willing to change your mind. That's how you don't get caught. With regards to, you know, is it a conspiracy theory or, or conspiracy? I once heard that the likelihood of a conspiracy being true is like inversely proportional to the number of people that would need to keep it a secret in order for it to actually be a conspiracy yeah. instead of a, that's, you know, instead, that's instead not of a bad... fake, like, 
you know, back you can't, out of your back pocket kind of a test for it because the flat yeah. earthers thought that every airline pilot, every NASA scientist, every astronaut, every world leader, every teacher or professor was in on the flat earth conspiracy. That's a lot of people. Plus, I mean, every world leader, really, Trump, you think he'd keep that secret? You think he could keep that secret? I don't think so. Yeah, so that's not a that's not a bad rule of thumb. And then for the for the science deniers expecting science to be perfect, I think this is where physicians are often challenged, yes. right? Because uncertainty, we swim in uncertainty, yes. right? Like we we whenever we're explaining the risks of a medication, explaining the risks of a procedure, of doing versus not doing the procedure, it's all uncertainty. But uncertainty can breed anxiety, it can breed mistrust, and it can make it look yeah. like we lack confidence. That's right. So as science communicators, do you have any recommendations for how we communicate uncertainty well? I love that question, and I think it's so important to realize, I mean, everybody who's an honest scientist or physician knows that you don't have all the answers. And so why not lean into that? Now, you, it's a scary thing to do because you said it makes it sound like you don't know what you're talking about. You're not confident. But I think there's a way to do it. And here's the, the really odd thing in, in my experience with this. It increases the person's trust in you to admit that you don't know everything. If you come off, because if, especially if you come off as a know-it-all and then the facts change and you change your mind, they don't think, oh, well, you have the scientific attitude, you changed your mind. They think, oh, you were lying to me before, weren't you? Right? Especially, you know, in the, something like with vaccines during the pandemic. I mean, there was not a lot of trust to go around. So I think the proper way to message that is to say, look, we're not 100% certain, but nothing is 100% certain. We, you know, we, we're not 100% certain that, that aspirin is safe. You know, so how can I guarantee that the, the vaccines are safe? In fact, right? it is not yeah. safe. Aspirin is not safe. It carries significant so, risk. So, you know, you don't want to put the person in a position to think, well, you know, God, if there's problem with this, problem with that, they don't know. You know, I just believe whatever I want. I think the appropriate way to message that is to talk about probability, is to talk about just to say, we have great warrant for this belief. They've done, you know, 300 uh, clinical trials on this, and here's what they found. And they haven't found, you know, no data so far have shown, you know, this thing that you're worried about. Now, is it possible that it's, yes, but they haven't found it yet. That will help people. I go, I go back to a line, this is stupid, and you don't want to say this to a patient, I understand, but it'll make you laugh. The movie Dumb and Dumber, you, you remember the scene where he's trying to convince the woman to go out with him. And, you know, he, he can't do it. He can't do it. I he know can't exactly do it. what you're going to say. Then she says, <laughs> and then he says, finally, what was it going to take for a girl like you to go out with a guy like me? And, you know, what are the odds? And she says, a million to one. And he says, so you're telling me there's So you're saying there's chance. a chance. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, and I mean, people yeah. understand that. They don't want to be the guy saying, so you're telling me there's a chance. So I think the way to message that is to say, you know, the, say you're trying to get them to take the vaccines or you're trying to convince them the MMR vaccines do not cause autism. You know, to be able to say, you know, 
when the study first came out from Dr. Wakefield, the field studied it. And, you know, they pretty quickly came to a consensus that they, this was not a reproducible result. And then something very interesting happened. They did, you know, an investigative reporter found that Wakefield, not only couldn't they uh, repeat his data, but that his data were fraudulent, that he had made it up and he lost his medical license over this and, you know, was kicked out of the profession. So, you know, can we prove that the MMR vaccine does not cause autism? We can't because that's not how science works. But if you're asking me if there are data to support it, there are not. That would be a, maybe an appropriate yeah. way to message that. Yeah. You know, for vaccines, same thing. But the, the main thing that I found in talking to science deniers, they don't have a fact deficit. They have a trust deficit. So if you're just ramming facts down their throat and saying, look, I'm an expert, believe me, trust me, you have to do what I say because I know best, just turns them off. You have to do whatever it takes to build trust. And sometimes admitting uncertainty is important. Uh, I, I, mean, I remember something really important. This is from my, my wife's, from the commencement speech at my wife's gradu medical school graduation. And don't say, I don't know, say, we don't know. <laughs> okay, when it's something that you're uncertain of, because then, you know, the credibility of the profession is behind very yeah, important. you're leaning on the institution, That's you're leaning right. on the House of Medicine there. So earlier you had said that there was something, a conspiracy that you had fallen for. Yes. And that you changed your mind now. in the face of new information. I think there's a good story there. there what was there that? There is a good story. And this is an embarrassing story, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because it's a story on me. So, And that what and it breeds more trust it, it probably, by showing it probably your own fallibility. Does. So I'm sitting at my desk and I'm writing a book on how to talk to science deniers. And I'm, I'm doing, I mean, I'm literally writing a book on science deniers. And it's, 5G is kind of brand new, or at least it was brand new to me. And I just gotten a 5G router. And I had this 5G router under my desk, five feet from my body. And I started to think, is this a good plan? You know, I haven't really done the research on this. I mean, I'm hearing all these weird things about 5G. And so I went out and I bought a little Faraday cage, a little aluminum sleeve that I could put over the router because I have a wired connection. So all day, every day, I'm using my wired connection and I don't need that router, you know, blasting out to my, you know, personal parts, 5G, right? <laughs> this is what I'm thinking Aren't of. there other people yeah. that you live with that need that Not data? during the day. The what? Not, during, Not the during the day. The, okay. So my wife would come home from work and say, the Wi-Fi is out again. And I thought, oh, and I just take off the sleeve, right? Well, yeah. after a few times of that, kind of got tired of it. And I did the research and found out it was bogus. This was a conspiracy yeah. theory that, I mean, I hadn't fallen for it in the sense that, I mean, I, I wasn't one of those people out there, uh, you know, burning cell towers, but I did carry it far enough to buy that Faraday sleeve. And by the way, the marketing on those is pretty good because if you Google, you know, is our 5G routers dangerous or 5G router protective sleeve? Oh boy, have they got the studies to, you know, to back this up, you know, the fake experts, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. we, you can't prove, and here's what really did me it, the precautionary principle, because you can't prove that 5G is safe. You can't prove that, you know, listening to your cell phone up next to your head is safe. 
you can't prove really that anything is safe. And so I thought, well, so why take the risk? Why not put the sleeve on? That's okay. But it really was not okay. Because once I took a day off of writing the book about science denial and examined my own beliefs, I discovered, nah, there's nothing to this. And I took the sleeve off, but I still keep it because it's now it's a trophy that I look at and say to myself, you too can fall for this stuff. But you too are also able to dig yourself out and, yeah. and correct yourself. So it's uh, to, your, to your credit as well. Okay. And 50 years <laughs> from now it. in the sleeper, when they find out that I was wrong, oh man, they're yeah. going to look at this and make fun of me. So, okay. So your book is called How to Talk to a Science Denier. But what we haven't gotten to is not, we haven't got to how to convince a science denier because we're in the exam room with them yeah. and we're trying to, although this is assuming that we're referring to a patient because I definitely want to get into other situations because as, as physicians, we're community leaders, we're colleagues, yes. we're partners, we're bosses, but specifically in the exam room, yeah. right? We got a finite period of time. So is there anything that we can do other than just engender trust? So that's what you said before. So, you know, you can easily damage the relationship by just telling them they're wrong. But yeah. You know, it, it, how can we move the needle a little further? Well, for, first, bless your heart for noting the distinction between talking to somebody and convincing them, because the I did, the book is not called How to Convince a Science Center. And what I what I want to say is, you have to listen to people before they will listen to you. And it's so hard these days because how long do you have anymore? You know, with capitation and all this, how long do you have? Eight minutes? Eight seconds? I mean, how long do you have with a patient anymore? Fifteen minutes max, right? Is that long enough to really listen to their story, you know, to hear the whole thing? And, and especially when they're really part of that oh, community, yeah. they're going to have a lot and they've to got say Mr. Google, before it's your uh, turn printed to talk. out yeah. for you. And will you read these stories and, you know, get back to me? And so there's the, the temptation to just be curt, to just be abrupt. The main thing to look out for is humiliation. Don't say, you know, I'm surprised that an intelligent person like you could fall for something like that. That just hurts. You could say, I mean, you could say something like, well, you know, a lot of people ask me about this and here's, you know, what I always say, just to let them know, you know, they're not the only ones. So you don't kind of have to start from square one. So they know, oh, other people have these concerns because yeah. then they might ask, well, what do the other people do? But yes. just in, understand going in. You cannot change somebody's mind for them. You can only be there for them, to, you to be a trusted partner for when they decide to change their mind. So it really is up to them whether they're going to take the vaccine, you know, for whatever they're going to do. And you can wear that responsibility like, oh, I failed because, you know, I told them to do this and they didn't do it. But you didn't. I mean, there's a lot of disinformation out there and it's very hard to fight the tide. And I say, preserve the relationship because you may not in one 15 minute meeting, get them to do it, but maybe take the papers that they printed out and say, okay, and I'm going to read this, but I'm also going to send you something that I'd like you to read. And next appointment, I want to talk about this again, and I want you to be prepared to make a decision. So kind of, you know, anchor that for them. Say you're trying to get him to take the shingles vaccine, you know, next time we're going to, yeah. I don't want to just talk about it. I want you to be prepared to make a decision. 
Now I've got to say, I, again, I do this with my own doctor about things. She looked at my cholesterol and wanted me to take a statin. And I said, I don't, I, why do you recommend I take a statin? Well, you know, here American Heart Association says you have to take a statin. You know, all these other people, you know, most of my patients now are taking a statin. And I think, is, and, and, and I said, is there anything I can do not to take a statin? Is there a test I can take? And she said, yeah, you could get a calcium scan of your heart and see what your arteries look like. But I'm telling you right now, with your cholesterol at your age, you know, you're going to need to take a statin. Well, is it because you saw yourself as someone like you, you exercise, you eat well, yeah. and therefore you're not in the, you identify. And I think that this, that was it. What you're, like these people end up identifying as part of this community yeah. that happens also with like, like diseases, like people yeah. that identify as having chronic Lyme. And if you start taking away their identity, yes. then that, that doesn't go very well. So they, she was like poking a yeah. hole in your how you think of I yourself. I don't take any medications. I'm 61 and I don't take any regular medications. And this would be my first one. And it's a prophylactic medication. Really, I'm at that point in my life. And plus my brother, who's older than me, did the calcium heart scan and he got a four. A four. <laughs> I don't know what that knows. It's in the, it's in the 13th ENT. percentile. So I mean, oh, okay. so he, did, he well. did really well. And I thought, okay, well, I got roughly the same genes. So competitive, you know, so, so she did a nice job though, of preparing me for, okay, go yeah. off and take this test. But if you get a higher score, I want you to take the stat. And I said, what does my score have to be for me not to take the stat? And she said, you know, four or below. Yeah. I got a zero. I'm well, on the zero. That's the only thing in life you want to be on the zero with percentile. I got a zero yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then immediately went home and, you know, the Fritos, the ice cream, because. <laughs> but I don't have to take and now a you're step, an and that's yeah. important. But we have evidence-based conversations, and that's kind of what you want, but the, the trust has to be there to do it. So if they, they come at you with these stack of papers, what happens if you start identifying the incorrect aspects of it, right? The lack of science, the poorly done studies, the, the fact that it goes against chemistry and physics and, you know, or so it was someone that lost their license. What happens if you start denigrating the material that they bring to you? I, I just, I think you have to share facts, but it's okay. how you do it, right? Respectful. Uh, yeah. You, you yeah. have to do it with, you know, calm, patient, respectful conversation. And people actually work very well with follow-up. You know, if you just feel like, I've only got 10 minutes to convince this person or they're going to die. You're probably not going to be a respectful conversation. But if you just yeah. use the, the time you know, in the appointment to keep that trusting relationship, and then you send them an email with something for them to read, maybe that'll work. Now, I know physicians and email, you know, then that's never ending, right? No, but, but I mean, no, that is not you, public you, information. You have something pre-printed that you could say, you know, take the thing and just say, yeah, follow Here, here's visit. something. Hey, you're coming to see me in six yeah. months or three months. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but I mean, anchoring um, the idea that, you know, I want, I want you to read this and be prepared to make a decision at the next visit might help. Yeah. Even get like, like sales approach, like one time only, like we're going to make this decision next time. And so, because yeah. I've found a lot of times with the vaccine, they make their non-decision is their decision. Meaning mm -hmm. like they, by pushing it off, 
it absolves them of the need to make a decision, which is an uncomfortable right. thing. So they just put it off indefinitely. But by giving them that, listen, next time we're going to decide yes or no, kind of forces their hand in, in one yeah. direction or another. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. How do you know if someone's engaging with you in good faith versus just effectively trolling you? Like we think of the trolls as being on the internet, but people can do that to you in person, just trying to get a rise out of you to get a rise out of you. How, how do you know if it's one versus the other? I, I must be the most naive person in the world because I really... I don't have those conversations with trolls, and maybe I do, and I just don't realize it. But uh, I mean, I, sure, I get them online, but face to face. I mean, when I went to the Flat Earth Convention, my friends told me, "Oh, what are you doing? This is all just a show." They're just pretending. Nobody could really believe that. Oh, yes, they did. They lost their jobs. Yeah. They lost family members. They got kicked out of their church. Nobody would do that for fun. So, I mean, having a good faith conversation. It, it's a threshold. I, I mean, if you really, if you approach those conversations with empathy, I think that you can kind of tell. Now, again, I, I don't, I don't know how to back that up, but I mean, when I was having you know really in-depth conversations with flat earthers, there was usually some pain behind it. They were yeah. upset over their rejection by the what they called the normie community. Or there was some trauma in their life that had led them to question whether they could trust anybody. And that's why they became a flat earther. So, you know, if you get somebody telling their story, that's pretty delicate grounds for a troll. I mean, trolls just kind of usually want to do a quick hit. But, yeah. you know, if you're really leaning into an actual human level conversation with somebody, that I think that sort of weeds out the trolls because it's no, it's no fun anymore, maybe. See, the troll's trying to get a rise out of you. You don't get angry. It's no fun. Yeah. That's interesting because now the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm thinking that I'm the troll in some of these conversations because <laughs> I'm entering with the agenda of trying to change their mind and they're entering with the agenda of maybe just trying to have a reasonable conversation about their beliefs mm -hmm. and, maybe, and, and share it with me. So I'm the one who's actually the disruptor. Right. Like I, I lose my patience frequently, not in the exam room, not yeah. with patients, yeah. but like in other scenarios when someone's coming at me with, you know, complete misinformation and disinformation, I have trouble keeping my cool. It's hard. I, I guess makes me it, the it, troll. No, it doesn't because trolls would never <laughs> reflect on it in that way. So you're in the clear. But I mean, it's nice to think about that. Because it is very easy to lose your patience, especially when the stakes are high. I mean, when you're having a conversation with an anti-vaxxer and it's face-to-face -face and they're kind of, you know, breathing on you, that, that's about as high emotional stakes, you know, during the pandemic as it could get. My, one of my hot buttons is climate change. Because, you know, I mean, we are, I mean, it's not quite as immediate as somebody breathing in your face. But we are all sort of in this together. On my walks every day with my dog, I pass this guy every day, same route. He's sitting in his car reading, and the car is always on. If it's, you know, it doesn't, summer, winter, the car is always on. Maybe he's got the air conditioning or the heater or whatever. And I don't know who he is. I suspect that he's a shift worker, and he doesn't want to report back, and he's just, you know, going to kill some time before he reports back. 
but he's polluting the environment. And I just, it's everything I can do not to go, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, to, to be disrespectful. That's what pushes my bar. And I mean, I haven't even built a relationship with the guy. There's not even any grounds for trust or conversation. I mean, the minute I bang on his window, you know, he might come out of there and, you know, we get in a fight. So it, it is, you, you, you have to be able to calm down to even enter in those kind of conversations or they won't work. Sometimes the best thing is just to walk away. But if you're going to do it, just be as cool as you can. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Dr. Lee McIntyre. If you like what you've heard, find his books at leemcintyrebooks.com. Part two, coming out soon. No matter what your insurance needs are, Set for Life Insurance has you covered. They're a nationally recognized leader in disability, life, and long-term care insurance, serving clients across all 50 states. Their dedicated team specializes in assisting medical residents, physicians, dentists, business owners, and other high-income professionals. Setforlifeinsurance.com or call them at 1-888-553-3559. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice, or financial advice, or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.